Hey, hello there, everybody. This is Elton Reads a Book a Week. I am Elton, and I read a book a week. This week's book is The World is Flat, a brief history of the 21st century. It's a coming-of-age tale that pits a heavily drugged man against a talking rabid dog who are both vying for the affections of an anthropomorphic turnip. Who will win? Who will lose? And what will be left of them? Keep listening to find out. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. Nope. Nope, that's not true. I just can't help myself sometimes. Though, okay, so I have to admit, when I picked up this book at a public library sale, I thought the book was about the world, or a world actually being flat, as in an interesting science fiction story, maybe about people on a flattened earth being carried by four elephants who are also standing on the back of a giant turtle swimming through space. Or at the very least, a book advocating on the behalf of flat-chested women. But no! Instead, this book is about the internet and how it has fucked us and is still currently fucking us. Balls deep. To clarify, when I say us, I mean U.S. citizens. And by the internet, I mean the very small portion that isn't porno and the clicking of like buttons. It's about the transmission of data and the infrastructure that facilitates that. It's about the Indian voice on the other end of the tech support line. It's about what other countries were doing instead of trickling down. It's about your laptop being repaired by people at UPS. It's about globalization and how it's a good thing. Though that depends on how you look at it, doesn't it? So, if you're ready, and I know you are, light your torches, raise them pitchforks, and let's get racist. I'm kidding. If you thought I was serious, what in the actual fuck is wrong with you? If you could see my head shaking, and it is, it has a very stern, what in the actual fuck is going on with you, eyes on its face. My face. You know what I mean. According to three-time Pulitzer Prize winner Thomas Friedman's book, globalization is mostly good for everyone involved, for the most part. I tend to read things with a viciously skeptical eye, because I'm a, I'm a dick when it comes to reading. Not that he didn't have his facts in order, but while I was reading, I couldn't help but think of the opposing side to everything he mentioned. It's just the way I respond to information. For whatever reason, I see things like this as a sales pitch. And I'm constantly trying to figure out what the angle is. What's the catch, you know what I mean? Well, the catch is, we're fucked. And we're being fucked. Not literally. I mean, how would that work? Machines, maybe? Like robots? Sex robots? Huh. Shit. No, I mean, I mean, metaphorically fucked. And we should have seen it coming. Should have been prepared. Are we doing anything about it? No. Why would we? That's not the American way. It's all brimstone and burning bodies from here on out, folks. Sell your kids and get your canned food and bottled water now. Shit's going down. And, sorry, <laughs> I can't. It's too Rush Limbaugh for me. It's just stupid. Uh, it's not that bad. Well, maybe not. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I should take a beat here. And explain what I'm talking about. It all starts with golf. I mean, what else, right? Fucking golf. Fucking 
In downtown Bangalore, India, there's a golf course surrounded by the corporate offices of Microsoft, IBM, Goldman Sachs, which wasn't finished when the book was written. It has that in there. Um, Hewlett Packard and Texas Instruments. Corporate logos litter the products and landscape. There's a Pizza Hut billboard in there somewhere. This is India. What the fuck is all this doing here? This is what Mr. Friedman was thinking that day. Later, he wrote down four words. The world is flat. Huh. What does that mean? Uh, I'll get there. What really solidified the world is flat idea for him, other than that golf course, was a conference room at Infosys Technologies Limited, located about 40 minutes from Bangalore. They're like the ground zero for Indian outsourcing. The people working there write software for major American and European-based multinationals. They do everything from computer maintenance, specific research projects, selling credit cards, to answering customer service calls routed there from all over the world, and just about every other damn thing, too. These guys, and companies like these guys, are the voices you hear when you call for customer support, or book a ticket for an airline, or complain about your internet provider, or use that online web chat thing that's made to tell you, turn off your device and turn it on again. Like that ever fucking works. The Indian guy you're talking to about your computer problems, he works in a place like this. People that write a lot of software you use work in a place like this. Phone apps, diagnostics, scheduling, and a whole world of shit you never thought could be outsourced is run from a place like this. It's due to connections. Not the mafia type, but the telecommunication kind. I'm fucked up. So why? How? Why not us? The why is pretty easy. It's because of fiber optics, the internet, and the sweet connections it fondles us with. The how, I'll get to later. The why not us is actually kind of sad. Well, to me it is. So let's start at the why, huh? It starts way back in history with Ad-Rock, MCA, and me, Mike D. Did you like that? Beastie Boys reference. Boom. If you don't know what that is, you can look it up later. The meat of all this happened in the 90s during the internet bubble slash dot-com boom slash dot-com bubble slash whatever the hell you want to call it. When everybody slapped a dot-com after their company name and claimed to know what the internet was and were given millions of dollars from investors in a make-it-rain kind of scene, a la like a stripper in a champagne room. There were huge investments in technology when they weren't buying mansions to fill with money. Why? Because the internet was heralded as the second coming of Money Jesus. The entire world was going to be internetting on the surf of the worldwide information superhighway or whatever. Every day. They wanted in on that. They wanted to run that. And oh, the money. It was going to flow like crystal off an expensive hooker's titty. Sorry, kids. So, drunk on the money of careless Ill-informed idiots, they threw cash at everything that would make the internet connectivity the cash cow they all dreamed of banging. Wait. No, that's not what I wanted. Gross. Uh, sorry. Anyway. Anyway. They laid down fiber optic cable everywhere. All over the place. All around the world. Because fiber optic cable can carry a lot of information. And that's what the internet runs on. For those of you playing at home, fiber optic cable is completely pressed strands of optically pure glass, each one as thin as a human hair, which are arranged into bundles called optical cables. 
The most important benefit derives from the dramatically higher bandwidth of the signals it can transport over long distances. Copper wires, like the kind cable comes into your house on, they can carry high-frequency bandwidth too, just not as far. It can only do it to a few feet before the signal starts to break up and degrade. Fiber optic cable can do it for miles. Each fiber optic strand in a cable is capable of carrying many terabytes of information, which is an absolute assload of information and data in technical terms. It's also very difficult to tap, so it's ideal for security. Fiber optic cables laid down everywhere in hopes that people were going to buy in and start interneting. But reality booted those companies and their collective nuts. Turns out that people are slow to adopt new technology. Nobody was even sure what the hell the internet did. So tech companies started folding. During the closings, they sold off the use of those cables for dirt cheap. What use were they? Nobody was interwebbing. It was a fire sale. Smaller companies bought up and used it. That initial laying frenzy included putting broadband connectivity around the world, too. Undersea cables. The works. A couple of small companies using and selling bandwidth for those cables. Computers becoming cheaper and blowing across the world like seeds on the wind of change. Or greed. Mostly greed. There was an explosion of email software, search engines like Google. They budded and software could parse up the work. You could send a chunk of work to Boston to be done, to Bangalore, India to be done, to Beijing. Made it easy for people to work remotely. And then you get all that work back and charge other people money for it. Life was fucking good. With all that, everything could be thought up, sketched out, fleshed out, split up, distributed, produced, and put back together again without ever leaving the house. Basically, it's possible for everyone to collaborate and compete in real time with other people around the world for work. Everyone is on a more equal footing than any other time in human history because of the internet and all that connectivity. I know. You're thinking, what about India? How did India end up being the place to outsource to? Isn't that weird? I know what you're thinking. Isn't that disturbing? Seriously. Seriously. Pick a number between 1 and 99. Oh, wait. Got it? Now check this out. How the hell would I know what number you picked? Man, oh man, you should see your face right now. It's hilarious. India. India is the benefactor of that fiber optic cable laying orgy in the late 90s. They benefited, meaning they and their American clients got to use all that cable practically free. This is pretty lucky in its own right. However, they were unknowingly preparing for all this for a long, long time. India is a country with virtually no natural resources. So, they did what any country with no natural resources should do. And it sounds kind of weird, but they began mining the brains of their own people by educating a relatively large slice of its elites in the sciences, engineering, and medicine. In 1951, India's first prime minister set up the first of India's seven Indian Institutes of Technology. In the 50 years since then, Hundreds of thousands of Indians have competed to gain entry and graduate from them, and their private sector equivalents, as well as the six Indian Institutes of Management, which teach business administration. Given India's one billion-plus population, they produce some of the world's most gifted engineers, doctors, software talent, and computer scientists, all of which 
is subsidized by the sweet Indian taxpayers. You can't bribe your way into those schools either. Candidates are accepted only if they pass a grueling entrance exam. Arguably, it's harder to get into one of those schools than into Harvard or MIT. For a long time, the U.S. benefited from all those Indian graduates. They would cherry-pick the best and the brightest and cart them over to Palo Alto, California. That's where all the computer magic is made. Now, with the fiber-optic cable connecting internet orama, they don't have to leave home anymore. So why not us? Though it's not in the book, I couldn't help but asking that question the entire way through. Why aren't we doing these jobs ourselves? The truth is, we haven't invested in our own education as enthusiastically as those other countries. Countries some U.S. citizens blame for quote-unquote stealing our jobs. Now those education-investing bastards are reaping the benefits. Well, we're just mourning job loss. What have we learned? According to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, 29 states provided less overall state funding per student in the 2015 school year, the most recent year available, than in the 2008 school year, before the recession took hold. As common sense suggests, and academic research confirms, money matters for educational outcomes. For instance, poor children who attend better-funded schools are more likely to complete high school and have higher earnings and lower poverty rates in adulthood. And of course, given that track, they would go on to graduate and become engineers, and computer scientists, and doctors. So we haven't learned much. Isn't that a bitch? I digress. I think I should tell you, or remind you, that this book was written in 2005. It's 2018 now. Even though 13 years have whizzed by, this book still explained a lot. I mean, a lot about how the world was starting to work back then, and how it definitely works now and has gotten worse we're better who knows it would be easy easy to say that globalization is an evil thing that it's responsible for outsourcing our jobs or that it's stripping nations and communities of their culture it's leading to a global homogenized culture in some ways it is but what did you expect really the broadband connections those entrepreneurs slap down in hopes of cashing in on and then collapsing under. They linked up the whole world. Supply lines are webbing countries together, sure, but ideas are flowing along those same connections. The Internet will make the world a one-world culture soon enough. The book explains how globalization is mutually beneficial to all involved. The world benefits from interconnection with cheaper, faster products and services. Innovation is streamlined and crowdsourced. That's a term that didn't exist when Mr. Friedman wrote it, wrote the book, that is. But he certainly would have included it had it been around at that time, I guess. Anyway, information dispersal increases efficiency and drives inventive solutions to problems that existed before and problems that interconnectivity causes, like reconfiguring failing businesses to cope with instant international competition. It also shows us, via the internet and the social connectivity it brings, by inversion, the destruction it causes for everyone. Globalization, coupled with the internet that drives it, delivers the instant accounts of sweatshop factory living conditions, neglected human rights, and endless hours in the pursuit of more and more profit. It's all in real time. Though, that footwork I had to do myself. That wasn't in there. There aren't many negative... There aren't many negatives presented in the telling, 
just the wins. Losses are alluded to, sure, but an author has to choose what path to take, you know? Positivity is always a safe choice, and I didn't mind that. This guy is a great writer. He really is. I, however, am an asshole, devil's advocate. I try to flip the story and see what the darker side looks like. For every story about performance bonuses that allow them to earn, in certain cases, the equivalent of 100% of their base salary, that's an Indian call center job that was described in the book. A low-prestige job in America, which is seen as high-wage with high-prestige over there. For every performance bonus, I think of the benefit being reaped on the other side, as someone paying dirt-cheap wages, getting more work for dirt-cheap. Though I found it interesting that a call center company in India sponsors an MBA program. MBA. Not basketball. The degree. Yeah. I found it interesting that, uh, that a call center company sponsors an MBA program for consistent performers. And that is common for people in India to pursue education, you know, through their 20s. Self-improvement is a big theme and actively encouraged by parents and companies. Around 10 to 20% pursue a degree in business or computer science during the day hours, uh, Rep is quoted in the book saying. Personally, I've worked for companies that wouldn't give you the time to shit properly, let alone encourage you to pursue a degree or help pay for one. It used to be that before the flat world of interconnection, people in poorer countries would have to pick up and move for higher paying gigs. Whereas now, all a place needs is a fast connection, educated staff, a clientele, and boom, money starts rolling in. 90% of the shares in the call center, he describes, are owned by U.S. investors. Explains why the U.S. loses so many jobs to India and places like it. Exports from American companies, merchandise, and services to India grew from $2.5 billion in 1990 to $5 billion in 2003. I thought that was interesting, so I went on the internet and looked it up to get more current shit. In 2016, ready for this? U.S. goods and services trade with India totaled an estimated $114.8 billion in 2016. Bad or good, that's not for me to say. I'm a humanist, somewhat. I believe everyone is entitled to get whatever they want. But the short answer is, India and other countries have higher educated talent because they invested in their people. By higher education, I mean higher educated across the spectrum. That sounds bad, I know. But as an example, there's an outsourced job to be a remote executive assistant. All right, say your boss asks you to give a speech and a PowerPoint presentation in two days. The remote executive assistant will do the research for the speech, create the PowerPoint presentation, and email the whole thing to you overnight. In my experience, I haven't met a lot of people qualified to do that. Surprising tidbit from reading the book, your CAT scans are probably being read and interpreted by doctors in India and Australia overnight. It depends on whether you live in the middle of nowhere, but hell, this is probably being done at every hospital by now. Remember, this thing was published in 2005 or four. American radiologists call those after-hour readings nighthawks. Because if American radiologists or anything, they're good at making up poorly applicable nicknames for outsourcing their own jobs. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna go with birds at night, use an owl, some other nocturnal bird, fucking dipshits. You went to fuck you went to school for fuck's sake. That was mean. I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. I'm just cranky. Hangry. Didn't eat much today.
Regardless, software development, news bulletins, stock analysis, some drive through restaurant ordering are all done in India, along with just about every other job you can think of. Even Reuters, the news people, they cut its staff by a quarter with deep cuts among its reporters because those research jobs can be done by Indian guys now. Thanks, dot-com bubble. Overall, as bleak as I've probably made this book sound, it's really good. There are a lot of brilliant anecdotes that help explain the concepts. What I talked about was, of course, just something I myself took away from it. But there's a lot of takeaways from this book, too. Tons. I left out so much. How UPS fixes your laptop, the just-in-time global supply chain thing, which was crazy. Uh, how American businesses are stripping down. Oh, and this ominous, eerily current thing. Quote, the splintering of media makes for a lot of incoherence or selective cognition. Look at our country's polarization. But it also decentralizes power and provides a better guarantee that the complete truth is out there, somewhere, in pieces. Unquote. Spooky, right? There's so much useful information in it, I highly suggest reading it for yourself. <sighs> but that'll do it for this week. Hey, make sure you follow me and send me messages on Facebook. The address is facebook.com slash Elton Reads Too Much. All one word. I read everything. Facebook.com slash E-L-T-O-N-R-E-A-D-S-T-O-O-M-U-C-H. M as in mmm, not n. You can also send me messages. Oh my God, I can't speak. You can also send me messages and support the podcast by contributing at Patreon slash Elton Reads a Book a Week, all one word. And those messages I'll mention in the podcast itself. But only if you want me to, of course, because I respect your privacy. And you can always tell your friends about this podcast, too, because it's on iTunes now and the Google Play Store and Stitcher, which I didn't know about and have never used, but it's on there. If you use it, I don't partake. Just search for Elton Reads a Book a Week and tap that subscribe button so you can automatically hear me misinterpret random books every week. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. Uh, I'll see you around. Oh, and read more books, will you? Don't let them die out. Thanks. Thanks.